but thank you all for joining us. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Luther, um, Luther acts like a big brother on the playground with this chapter. He defends this chapter especially. Um, he gets upset with people who attack this chapter. And so he's just there as, as the defender of Matthew 5, um, this poor chapter that gets abused and gets turned around and, and he's there like a bulldog with this chapter. Um, um, so as we're, as, we're, as we're beginning, we're not only beginning chapter 5, but of course we're beginning the Sermon on the Mount. And these are three chapters that go together, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And a question we probably need to ask is where did it get that name? Because somebody called it that first. And as far as I've been able to find is a reference in Luther to St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th century and who called it the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. So I don't know if somebody before St. Augustine had called it that, but he certainly did. So it's that, that name for the chapter has been around for a while. And we do use that because Jesus does actually go up onto a mountain to preach. But there is a parallel text in Luke that begins in Luke 6, in which Jesus does not climb up onto a mountain, but he goes on to a level space, a plain and so sometimes we call that one the Sermon on the Plain and this one the Sermon on the Mount. And we have, and I'm going to say an insoluble question. Is it the same sermon or is it two different sermons? Um, would Jesus have said the same thing more than once, you know, in three years of ministry? And I think he might have. Um, I know that if I come up with a snappy illustration, Sometimes, you know, it works for people. Sometimes I use it more than once. Uh, not that long ago, Pastor Scharf took a dump truck into the front of the church and said, this is Pastor Smith's dump truck of repentance. And I thought, that's not necessarily mine, but you know, go ahead and if you want to call it that and, and, and use that illustration. So sometimes these things get names and, and so forth. Um, I've used other things to illustrate repentance besides the dump truck, but it does work well with little kids um, occasionally. Um, so anyhow, I don't know if Matthew 5 to 7 is the same as Luke 6 and other places because it's in Luke it's spread out and in Matthew it's all in one kind of spot. But uh, do we all know what the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is? What story or event? Well, that's the Lord's Prayer. So as you're thinking about it, the middle of Luke 6 is the Lord's Prayer, and that's sort of the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount. Eastern thinking peoples, Old Testament folks and so forth, like their climax to be in the middle or at the peak of the mountain, whereas we Westerners kind of like the climax to be more at the end of the story, um, when does Holmes fight Moriarty at Reichenbach Falls? It's at the end of the story, not in the beginning or middle of the story, um, and so forth. And uh, I assume you all have read Sherlock Holmes. Maybe not. Anyway, there you go. Um, so, uh, or when does Frodo fight Gollum? 
He doesn't know. At the end of the Lord of the Rings? So. <laughs> and, uh, okay, let's just go on. So, all right. So, just beginning chapter 5. Uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountain. I'm just going to read the two verses and then we'll kind of talk about them. So, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. He said these things. Um, so he sees the crowds, goes up onto a mountain, and sits down and his disciples come. So who, the question is, who is he preaching to? For sure his disciples. And do we know that the disciples are just the 12 or is it the bigger group of disciples? And I've got to think it's the bigger group probably um, because they were with him. You've got, for example, Mary, 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 Mary and Salome who are following him around and helping him out. And you've got um, Matthias and uh, Bar, uh, Justice Barsabbas, the, the, the two guys who were with him the whole time but weren't called out as apostles and, and other people like that. So there, there's that group. Were there other people who were perhaps not Believers who were in the crowd and the, um, hold that thought, Laura. And most commentators find no evidence for there being unbelievers in this crowd. That it's wise to take the crowd as being believers. Whether they were more than the 12 and a few more, or is it big, a big, big crowd that's up there? Don't know. Certainly the paintings would have us believe that there were hundreds and hundreds or thousands, but... Mrs. Martins, you had it. No, it was basically what she said. Yeah. But it doesn't say that they went with him. It's it, you know, it, so is there there's kind of a question. Did he go up he wanted to teach so he got away? You know, taking the few up the mountain, like let's get away from the crowd. Um, or is it that he went up on the mountain so the crowd could hear, hear him better? You know, there are two ways of taking that, and we don't really have necessarily um, a final answer on that one. Um, so, if there were a large crowd, but he had the 12 apostles with him, he could certainly have used them as a loudspeaker system. You know, how do you do that? Well, you say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on and on and on. And they go back like that. So that's what, um, you know, that, that's always been a question. In the time before electricity and loudspeaker systems, how do you speak to big crowds? And a traditional way was repeating like that. Um, what did they do in churches? Sometimes guys can't talk loud. Um, Aaron? The hood over the pulpit. It's called a shawl deckle. And uh, uh, often it's designed to look like the pulpit, but backwards. Like the pulpit comes down and the shawl deckle goes up. And there's a thin membrane of the thinnest wood you, you've, you've got. And then, or even paper. And then that absorbs the sound like a drum. And then it projects the sound outward. But that's what that thing was 
above pulpits that you see in old paintings. Some churches still have them. I think the Schaldeckel is there now at Grace, Milwaukee. I don't know if anybody's been there lately, but they restored their pulpit to its original state. So it has the giant stairway that's kind of rickety and I'm always terrified of, or was, and the Schaldeckel above. Um, also, St. Mark's Watertown has one? Okay. And uh, also, um, Luther, in talking about church design and so forth, was always frustrated with large cathedrals, huge spaces, because you can't hear the preacher. If the sound begins to echo after a while, you just lose it. And there is, even in our sanctuary, which is 75 feet from the, from the organist to the preacher, um, there's a delay of a couple seconds. You know, so that, you, you, know, that, that uh, it's, you can certainly tell if the preacher is singing without the microphone on. There's a delay. And it, and it messes everything up. The preacher almost has to anticipate and sing faster than the organist playing for it to sound right to some of the people. It, it, that's just a mess uh, when it happens. Um, but, um, uh, oh, okay, enough of that. Anyway, um, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits down. And that's the symbol, or was the symbol, of the beginning of the sermon. Remember when Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum? He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, hands it back to the officer, and then sits down. And that's when he's going to begin to preach. I'm, I'm willing to take a motion that the preacher gets to sit down during the sermon. If anybody would like to offer that, I'd be perfectly fine. Even put the chair out in front of the altar or whatever, just let me sit down and I'll have a little music stand for my notes and I'll just preach. That'd be nice. That's how I practice it these days. So, anyway, enough of that. Okay, so he opens his mouth. Oh, and then on, on this chapter, Luther goes on and on for two pages about the phrase... He opened his mouth and began to teach. So, uh, Luther comments that Jesus did not preach without a call. When did Jesus' call take place? We just talked about it, I think maybe it was a couple weeks ago. It's at his baptism. That's when he's called by the Father. The Father says, listen to him. Um, and it can be tricky to, uh, for, for some of our men. I know that when I was a, a, a missionary, I was assigned to the Pacific Northwest out of the seminary. And normally when a pastor or a teacher has a call package, there is, you might get a syllabus of what you're going to teach. There might be like a school roster or the church directory of, of what you've got, uh, what, whether they're from members, the church constitution, this and that, that, of events that they've done recently and so forth. When I got my, 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 my call, my assignment to become a missionary, um, I got a state highway map of Washington State. There was a yellow circle drawn with a highlighter by my district president, I was there when he did it, who drew a circle around a city and said, you should probably do mission work here. And then there was a post-it note with an address of a house the synod had bought for us and the key to the front door taped to it. And that was my call package. Um, tomorrow is, is uh, Jameis' birthday. Imagine Laura 
Benjamin was two days old, no, two weeks old, when we got in the car to drive to Washington State. <laughs> she, she still had stitches and so forth. And, uh, and we had to, it took us four days to drive from Wisconsin to Washington State because we had to stop for like feedings and diaper changes and so forth. Every, almost every town across the country, um, all down I-80 and then I-90, you know, to get over there. Um, it, it took a long time, but it was a fine drive. But once I got there, um, I started knocking on doors, which was my assignment. Start a new church from scratch. No building, no congregation, no nothing. There's your house, start knocking on doors. I started knocking on doors. I learned to avoid Rottweilers and Dobermans and Black Labs that were interbred with them because everybody has them out there and, they, and they, nobody obeys the leash laws out there, in fact, even the state cops. So I was literally running from Dobermans and things. Um, but I was knocking on doors and people would ask me, why are you starting a new church? It was a great question. There were two Missouri Synod, two Missouri Synod churches within walking distance of our home. Why start a new Wells Church there? That was a great question. Does anybody know the answer? That's where the circle was. That's where the circle was. And, uh, and to be honest, uh, because I had been assigned seven years too late. So that the idea for it, Gene, are you looking for the upstairs meeting? Do you have one? Where was I? Seven years too late. So, <laughs> so, Gene, we're recording. Okay, uh, I've said it out loud. Uh, so, um, the idea for my mission happened in 1992. Then I was assigned in 1999. And... The, the, uh, the place had grown from 4,000 people to 60,000 in those seven years, including churches you know, springing up all over the place. We were way too late uh, with regard to that mission. And uh, although it worked, you know, we, we did start the mission. It is still going today. They have a pastor. Um, uh, his, uh, uh, his parents are our members here at St. Paul's. And so the, the, the mission is thriving. They've gone to two services now. So that tells you, how many, you know, about how many people they have. And, and it's a success, but by the grace of God. Um, but difficult when, you, when people are wondering, why would you even start a church here? So what does Jesus do? He doesn't go into the synagogues right away. He goes up onto a mountain and preaches and gets a following. And then, and then we're going to go from there. So Jesus says these things. And I want us to remember something in these chapters. In these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is especially emphasizing the true knowledge of the law in opposition to the glosses, that is the extra, the marginal notes of the Pharisees. Who understands the true law as opposed to what the Pharisees have done, which is add on to the law? And Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry, just as handling the Pharisees by themselves. There are about four different groups that will oppose Jesus. The Sadducees 
and the teachers of the law or the scribes and also the elders of the people and, 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 and the, the Pharisees. And so by, the, by Holy Week, Jesus is handling them all at the same time. Boom, 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 boom. I can talk to any of you at the same time. In the beginning, he just talks about the Pharisees. They were probably the most numerous group and the group that was best represented in Galilee. So lots and lots of Pharisees up there, up north. The other ones are probably more prevalent in Jerusalem, but he's up north right now. So we're going to focus on, on that and remembering those things, that Jesus is primarily speaking to believers who are already believers, and he's dismissing false teaching about what is the law. So, for example, in these Beatitudes, you know, what is a Beatitude? That's just Latin for blessed. That's where that comes from. Beatitudino, I bless you. Um, or in Greek, makarios, I bless you. In English, I bless you. You know, Gesundheit, I bless you. You know, go ahead, Herb. A lot of it was word and word of mouth, but we do have the Mishnah or the Talmud where a lot of these things are, are recorded and talked about. And it's not so much a one, two, three, four recording as it is a discussion of what about this oral law? What do you think? What do you think? This rabbi said this. This rabbi said that. They have a different of opinion about it. And so you're, you can be a more strict Jew and follow this rabbi, Shammai, or you can be a more liberal Jew um, and follow this other rabbi, Gamaliel, and, and how, you know, how would you go? That's more how it's handled, rather than uh, numbers 1 through 50 kind of a thing. I, it, more like 1, one through 5,000. You know, lots and lots and lots of them. But they're not really numerated like that anywhere. That would be quite a project. And of course, people would debate you on whether you're whether your tally is correct. So, I don't know. Did I answer your question? No. Okay. Right. But, but some of them are debating what does scripture mean. Not all of them, but some of them are a, a debate over that. Um, for example, um, Moses permits a divorce. And the two men I mentioned, Shammai and Gamaliel, they debated, can you divorce your wife for any, any, and, any and, and every reason? And the one guy said, well, yeah, if she burns my dinner, she's trying to kill me. That's actually in, in there. In fact, that was Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, who said that. And, uh, and the other guy said, no, it, it's, it's about faithfulness. So, and it, and it goes back, and, and, they're, they're, and the thing is, the way we interpret scripture we wouldn't follow one line of, the, of, of those lines of because they go back and forth and it's kind of a crazy hodgepodge of, of who has which opinion about what. Um, much safer. And of course, the only right thing to do is to follow scripture alone. All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we begin with this first, but I'm going to talk about the word blessed before we really get into the, the actual um, um, beatitude or blessing here. First of all, makarios 
is a Greek idea of being blessed. Who, who is blessed? Well, the Greek idea of being blessed is getting or doing anything I want. That's truly being blessed. And it was an old Greek ideal. The Greek philosophers, uh, whether they're Stoics or, or others, um, talk about this. The playwrights, and the, the reason the playwrights are important is because we have a lot more of what they wrote than of anybody else in the early days, the 400s or whatever. So Sophocles, who is a tragedian, he writes tragedies, he talks about this. Sophocles' idea is that look at what the gods do. The gods get away with murder, rape, stealing, bullying, conquering, always with impunity. They, they, they do whatever they want to. That must be truly being blessed or being happy. Another way of saying blessed in, in this case is being happy. You know, but the, but the thing, the difference is a man can't get away with the, what, what the gods can do. And so Sophocles came up with, well, then it must be that the, the truly blessed man is dead. Why? Because the Greek ideal was to slough off the physical body and be left with nothing but the spirit. That only when you get rid of, this, of the body is the spirit finally truly blessed and happy. And, and which, which, by the way, is why when Paul is writing to Greek-speaking people like the Corinthians, he spends so much time on the resurrection of what? The body. Because he's got to correct them. They've got this wrong idea about the resurrection. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is this massive chapter, longer than some other entire epistles. Because it's so important to get that right. What is the resurrection of the body? Um, and, but Sophocles had come up with the idea that the truly blessed man is the one who dies. And in fact, self-inflicted death would be the ideal. But Greeks in general didn't really latch on to that. You kind of had to be a philosopher to really buy into the idea, or, or a losing general or something, to buy into the idea of suicide to, to, to have a victorious end. Who's the most famous Greek who took his own life? Socrates, Socrates yeah. Um, so Socrates, accused of, uh, of corrupting the youth of Athens, is sentenced to death and is permitted to, to do self-inflicted death. So they, they give him some hemlock. And he tells his young pupil, I think his name was Crito. I'm kind of forgetting that part of the story. He says, Crito, we should offer a rooster to Asclepius, who is the god of medicine and healing, because hemlock is a drug. So let's offer the correct sacrifice. And then he drinks the hemlock. He begins to walk around and stomp his feet. Why? To get the poison moving in his system. And then pretty soon he can't stand anymore. He sits on the edge of the bed. He's continuing to lecture and talk. And his pupil, um, uh, 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 after Socrates would have been uh, Plato, writes, writes all this down um, later on what happened. And then pretty soon he can't sit up anymore, so he lays down, and pretty soon his heart stops and he dies. But, that's Soc but the average Greek didn't want to do that. They were, they were terrified of death. And another Greek playwright, Aristophanes, writes a play in which he... He has, I don't know, a magician or somebody. It's in his play, The Frogs. He has somebody conjure up dead people 
and he asks them about their happiness. And, he, and, and, and the, all the dead people, including Socrates, this is after Socrates' death, obviously, and, and say, yeah, no, that was all baloney. We're not really happy after death. And he just makes a mockery of all of this, of what had happened, because the average Greek was terrified of death, like the average Gentile is terrified of death, which is the correct response to death. If you don't know Christ, you should be terrified. Um, uh, and therefore, the difference w between the Greek idea that being blessed is getting or doing whatever I want to is countered by Jesus with a biblical idea. Being blessed is getting or doing whatever God wants. That's truly the contrast. Um, whatever God wants me to be, a parent, a leader, does God want me to be wealthy? Does he want me to be poor? Does God know that I would do better as a poor person? Why? Because I'd have less temptations. And God understands maybe my personality. Yeah, we got to cut him off at about so much and no more, you know, and, 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 or whatever it is. Would I be better as a soldier, as a sailor, as a farmer, as a painter, as a carpenter, as a teacher? Whatever it is, whatever God gives me to do, I'm blessed. And God's hand is upon me. Um, would I do well with a whole ranch full of animals? Or can I barely maintain three kittens? You know, God knows and God stops me and keeps me and blesses me. This is for you, Jameis, and you, Ezra. The other day, I'm walking up the stairs from my basement to my upstairs. And my cats have begun to steal drinking straws. And they run around with the straws in their mouths and they all look like FDR. You know? <laughs> Like one of them was going to get up one day and say, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, you know, this long cigarette holder. Any, anyway, uh, 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 Ross, he's the white cat, he's got a straw sitting off the edge of the top step and he's at the top of the stairs. And so it's kind of like projecting outward. And he crouches down so I can see his shoulders and he gets right down and puts his mouth on the straw, Right? And I'm walking up the stairs and I see him kind of jerk his body a little bit and something hits me in the neck. My cat invented the blowpipe. And he looks at me like, gotcha. You know, and I, I have no idea. I, I, I assumed it was an accident. There was just something in there and he didn't know that if he blew with it aimed at me, it would like send the projectile into my flesh, but... But later I saw the three of them and they were talking about poison. I don't know what happened anyway. But God blesses us in different ways. Let's get to our first beatitude now. Blessed are the poor in spirit for, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not talk about the kingdom of heaven in all eight of the beatitudes. He, only some of them. Um, and incidentally, I have this on your sheet somewhere, um, the first four of the Beatitudes are more about how God blesses us and the last four are more about how we show that we're blessed by what we do. So there's a difference. They're not all on the same, in, not all in the same context. Um, but with, these, with this first one, though, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, God... I, 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 God, throughout the scriptures and Christ throughout his teachings, 
Never talks about an earthly kingdom, does he? Um, and there, in, in just a couple of words, Jesus destroys the, the, the false doctrine of the, of, of, of the millennium, which believes in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ over the unbelieving world. Um, uh, the, picking that up from one chapter of the book of Revelation. Um, but one of the false doctrines that's called out here is that uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, am I on the right screen? Yeah. Yes. Laura. I have a question. Oh, I'm good at those. What exactly does he mean by foreign spirit? Well, let's look at that. <laughs> so I'd like you to practice the Greek word. So it's spelled patakas, as if it's three syllables, patakas, patakas. Um, but when you're a Greek, you just say the T with the mouth closed, tukas. That's really how you would say that, not really patakas. But I want to be crass, so I'll just say patakas. Um, so, uh, but you, most of you have heard of dinosaurs with names like pterodactyl, and pteranodon and things like that. But we don't say, we say pterodactyl, right? So we've, we've learned um, because at least we get that much from, you know, science. So uh, a tuckus is a beggar who has nothing. He really truly has nothing at all. And a beggar who has nothing um, really learns to prioritize. What should he ask for? Um, if a man goes homeless, what is the very first thing he's concerned about? The first thing. Bathroom. Even before food, it's bathroom. Because where am I going to go to the bathroom? That's just the very first order of business. Um, and then there are some other things. For example, shower. Because um, if, if, if you've gone homeless, people are going to know after about two days that you have not bathed and have not been able to wash your clothes. You know, um, There's only a certain amount of time that what I'll call dorm clean can, can make it in the world. Anybody know what dorm clean is? Yeah. When you're in the dorm... You haven't done your laundry for a couple of days, so you start sniffing armpits and things, and ah, this would work, you know, and things like that, and you kind of move on from there. Um, so, uh, uh, so after bathroom and then bathing, and with it, laundry of some kind is necessary. From there, you go to food, shelter, money, uh, things like that. When I was um, when I was in uh, my uh, in, in, in our training system for pastors, your seventh year um, postgraduate, which is your third year of seminary, is spent in the field at a church and under the tutelage of a pastor who's called your bishop. We call it the vicar year. And I spent my vicar year in the inner city of Milwaukee. And we had a whole group of our congregation were homeless men. Um, we were in that part of the city. They lived under the bridge that was just a couple of blocks away. They, they slept under a big major bridge. All the bridges in Milwaukee, um, they, they have a corner because the two halves of the city fought over which way 
will the streets go? And so they had to build their bridges at an angle. So there are these massive bridges that, have, that, that, that make a turn, the ones that are by the lake and then the ones that are in, inward and so forth. Um, and uh, the guys lived under there and slept under there. And they would, but they would come to church at, Gray, or at, uh, at Salem. And it was delightful because what the congregation had done for them. The, the, the grassy area by the parking lot was, was set off so they could bring in their shopping carts and angle park their shopping carts neatly. It was really cool. Actually, it looked like a fence. It was so big on Sunday morning. It was very nice. And they had their own pews because, you know, anybody who is a visitor is going to say, those guys really stink. They smell bad. But they want to be there in worship. So they had their own section um, and everybody was okay with that. We had helped them by providing bags of food every week that would have certain staple foods, peanut butter and bread and so forth. Um, mostly non-perishable, but some of it would be good for a while, like a small jar of, of uh, jelly and things like that. Um, and a, a Bible or a New Testament or a devotion booklet. I got my start on doing some devotions that way and, uh, and taking care of them. And our ushers knew which of them were our members and which weren't because there had to be a certain amount of, um, of distinguishing for Lord's Supper. You know, should you be going up or not? And our ushers knew which, who were our guys and so forth. Um, but the guys around, um, oh, it was uh, before Halloween, they would start breaking windows to be able to go to jail. So they would, they would break a window before Halloween and then sometime before Thanksgiving, their case would come up. Then they would get to be in jail for the winter. You know, so it's a good way of getting shelter for a while without having to pay for it. Um, and, uh, and then they would get out again and, and so forth. But um, their concerns were met. Those were guys who had very little, almost nothing at all. Um, but if you are poor, so that's poor in... In, in physical blessings. But to be poor in spirit is to be probably those who are, remember Jesus' audience are believers. So the spiritually poor are those who are crushed. They know their sins and they need their savior. So they are repentant. The poor in spirit, they're contrite, they'll be forgiven. Um, I don't have it here because this morning with an hour and a half, two and a half hours to go before class, I lost this entire, this entire PowerPoint. I was writing to, uh, to an external drive and I bumped the cord and it lost everything. I had to retype it this morning. So there are a couple of typos and I lost some slides. And one of them was, um, it must be Psalm 32. Would that be right? Um, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and so forth. Psalm, is that 51? Sorry. Oh yeah, sure it is. Yeah, because it begins with um, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's verses 5 and 10 of Psalm 51. That's right. Thank you. Um, so that's the contrite. Um, and then consider, for example, the whole book of Job. What was Job accused of and who accused him? Jamus? That's a, a concise, accurate summary of the book of Job. His friends accused him of sinning. How could you possibly have all this stuff go wrong, Job, if you had not committed some massive sin? 
Um, and they had different ways of doing it. Um, if you know the book of Job, you know that his three friends, anybody remember their names? I call them L, Bill, and Mr. Z. So you have Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Mr. Z is Zophar the Namathite. And they, those names are also representative somewhat of, of, of their arguments. Because Eldad, uh, or Bildad rather, um, the, um, no, Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm sorry. The, the Temanites were known for their natural wisdom. Um, other parts of the Bible talks about the wisdom of Teman and so forth. And where is Teman? We talked a while ago about where John the Baptist was, uh, was held at that, at that fortress on the other side of the Dead Sea. That's the land of Uz in the book of Job over there and north of there. And Teman is south of that in what you and I would probably call Edom today or something like that. But Job, that, <clears throat> I don't have scriptural proof. I only have scriptural hints for the date of Job. But these are my hints. The book of Job mentions individuals who are present halfway through the book of Genesis. And the book of Job never mentions the Israelites. So wouldn't a book about people who believe in God mention Israel or Zion or Jerusalem in some way um, or, the, or, the, or the, the conquest or something if it were written later, like in the days of the judges or something? So Job seems to be written before, or rather seems to take place, was written maybe in the time of Solomon, but it seems to take place earlier than the Israelites coming as a two million strong nation. And therefore, when Jacob was maybe just going down to Egypt or sometime around there, um, in the 1900s, 1800s BC, maybe in the time of Isaac, or when Jacob, as I said, Jacob had just left. Why? For one thing, um, the Temanites are still very populous, and the Moabites and, Edom, or, or, and Ammonites are not mentioned in Job either, and they're descendants of Lot. So those nations are not nations yet, they're just families. And then you have this second man, uh, Bildad the Shuhite, Shua, is the name of one of Abraham's children through his second wife. After Sarah died, Abraham married a woman named Keturah, and Shua is one of their children. So this Shuhite, is he maybe even Abraham's grandson or great-grandson? He's a descendant of Shua, part of the big family? I think probably. Also, when, when, the, the, when the Temanite is giving his arguments in Job, it's all about, we learn this from nature. Don't you know about this from, from nature and the natural world? When Bildad the Shuhite talks, he talks almost as if he's, what's the guy from Fiddler on the Roof? Tevia. Um, besides, if I were a rich man, what's Tevia's big song? Tradition. tradition. And tradition is um, Bildad's big theme. This is the way it's always been. It's tradition. And then the third guy, Zophar, and, and the, the name Namathite is, who knows what it means. He's like he's from the moon. And he's just, he's spiteful. 
He's not a very nice person, and he kind of tends to say, yeah, what they said whenever he speaks. You know, and so they go through these things where one of them says something and Job responds, and then another one says something, same argument from a different angle, and Job responds, and then the third guy really lays into Job, and Job says, what are you doing? And then Job has another little extra chapter, and then they go on. And yet, what's the very middle of the book of Job? I know that my Redeemer lives in chapter 19. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Job is accused of, of, of sinning when in fact he has not sinned. Why, why did all the bad stuff happen to Job? The devil asked God if I can tempt Job. And God said, well, okay, but you can't kill him. So Job loses everything. His, his wife turns away her faith from Job's faith. Curse God and die. He loses his animals, his servants, his children are killed. Um, he loses his health and his friends begin to lay into him. What does he have left? He has his faith. And Job stands firm in that faith, but he begins to ask God, where are you? And then God comes. By the way, is God far away? No. God is there the whole time. He answers him out of the storm. That's the storm coming through the whole book of Job. Suddenly God speaks, um, and not only does Job repent, but Job sacrifices on behalf of his friends, and God accepts that intercession and forgives them too. Okay, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will, be, they will know forgiveness. Second one, that was the first beatitude. Okay, second one. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Um, there may be two ideas of mourning. Um, first of all, we, mourning, we think of grieving mostly for the loss of a loved one, right, because of a death. But you can also mourn uh, um, uh, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a child is gone, right, has run away or something. Or if... Uh, or, if you've had uh, uh, oh, just a train wreck has happened in, in a marriage and the spouse has gone, you can grieve over that. You can mourn if your circumstances have, have changed and you're no longer, you no longer have the status you once had and people are, you know, everybody's against you all of a sudden. Um, uh, uh, loss of property, uh, loss of position, loss of relationship, loss of life. Um, mourn your loss of health, whatever it is. Lots of different reasons to mourn and grieve. And the difference is not um, what are the things I'm grieving. The difference is if I'm grieving from an earthly standpoint um, because I think I deserve these things or if I'm grieving and mourning from a godly standpoint, you know, I'm simply sad and I want God to help me. It's, um, that's the difference. Um, between those two things because everybody would mourn any of those things, wouldn't they? And yet, am I looking to God for help or am I, um, am I scheming in a worldly way to get something back, I suppose, or something along those lines? However, um, I, I, I just have this other slide. Be careful to keep in mind the context in each beatitude. Christ is talking to believers who already have faith. He's not talking to unbelievers in order to convert them. So that's our... So and we, we come to a story, for example, of the 
rich man and poor Lazarus, Luke 16. The rich man allows Lazarus, the beggar, to lie on the steps outside of his home for years and years and years, never lifts a finger to help the poor man, never lifts his heart to even want to help the poor man. And so what happens when the poor man, when Lazarus, the believer, dies? What's the, it's almost flowery language that Jesus uses. He's carried to heaven by angels. And how does Jesus talk about the rich, the, the rich man? He also died and went to hell. Yeah, it's, it, it, Jesus is a genius in his storytelling. Um, you know that, and in the case of the rich man, uh, what is the sin in him? Is it his wealth? Not at all. It's not sinful to be, to be wealthy, um, but rather the sin is his greed and his stinginess and his attitude about his wealth. You know, I'm not even going to help this poor guy who needs something who's right there. You know, I practically have to step over him to get into my house. I'm not going to help him. I'm just going to keep stepping over him every day as if he's just a stick or a bump in my sidewalk. Anybody have anything else on that one? Okay. Blessed are the gentle, because they will inherit the earth. What's the older word for gentle? Meek. 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 What does meek mean? Gentle. <laughs> However, you've got in Psalm 37, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So that, you know, and now in Psalm 37, uh, is the land there the land of heaven or is it something else? Mark, you have a different comment? Yeah, the opposite of meek. Yeah, exactly. To, to oppress. Yeah, yeah. Um, here we have this question, though, about what does he mean by inheriting the earth? I said not every, not every one of the, of the Beatitudes is about the kingdom of heaven. And here we have one that just talks about the earth. Um, maybe I'll come back to that. Um, let's just talk a little bit more about the gentle or the meek. The meek has patience which without resentment bears the insults or injuries of an oppressor? What does the natural old Adam want to say if I am injured or oppressed by somebody else? I should get even. I should stand up for myself. i got to stand up for my rights. I almost quoted, I forgot who they are. you got to fight for your right to party. Um, who is that? Beastie Boys. Thank you. All right. Um, so, uh, the, the, uh, but the meek, and it isn't just a matter of, because the, the meek says, if they're going to walk all over me, if that's for the sake of Christ, then that can happen. When we were handing out those bags in my, in my vicar year, those grocery bags to the homeless and to others, to drug addicts and other people, um, some of our members, especially new members, would question, should we be doing that? Because it was well known that other people were handing out bags of food to the homeless in Milwaukee. 
And we, we were told that the Catholic Church up the street, that, that people were getting $3 a bag for the Catholic bags, and they were getting $6 a bag for ours. So we had better food. You know, we had, we had peanut butter and jelly and stuff, and Bibles and stuff. And people would say, you know, aren't, you know, aren't they taking advantage of this? And if they're just selling it to buy, you know, a, a fifth of gin or something, you know, should they be doing that? And my, 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 my bishop, Pastor Sonneman, would say, well, if, if we can let them take advantage of, of us, and yet that helps to get the gospel out to somebody, isn't that what we're here for? So they, that, that, that homeless person becomes a strange pulpit. If, if he allows us to give a Bible or a New Testament with our church's you know, phone number in there and here's our soup kitchen and if you'd like help, you know, here, here we go and, and uh, or some devotions, you know, especially at holiday time, um, then, yeah, what, what an easy thing to do to, to stand there on Sunday afternoon after church and the elders of the church and some of the ladies would, after they're done cleaning up after the Lord's Supper, because we used to wash every individual glass after communion, because we had practically no budget. We spent all the money on the grocery bags, you know, so we would wash the communion cups even. Um, but uh, to, to, to hand them out, we did them together as a, as a congregation, kept them in locked cabinets, all the, you know, the goodies for them and so forth, never got robbed, um, but at least not in the, all, the years before I was there and while I was there, and, uh, and, and, and were able to help people. Um, but for the sake of the gospel, to let someone, you know, use you, walk all over you, if that gets out the gospel, then why not? Um, meekness is a quality that shows itself in the whole conduct of a person. The meek is always mildly minded toward his neighbor. That's Luther's word, mildly minded toward his neighbor. Did Luther coin the phrase mild-mannered? Which superhero is mild-mannered? Superman is Clark Kent. Yeah, mild-mannered. I'll just leave that. I'll just I'll go on there. But back to the back to the inherit the earth part. Um, could this be eternal life? The new heavens, the new earth. The idea of new heavens and new earth have not been introduced into the New Testament yet. That's the other end of Jesus' ministry during Holy Week. Here, um, inherit the earth. It was um, one of Luther's students was named Martin Chemnitz. You might have heard of the Second Martin. The, there was a, a, a Catholic priest who once said, if the second Martin had not come along, the first Martin would have been forgotten. That by the time that Chemnitz came along, Luther was all but done. But then Chemnitz was the champion who really took the Catholic Church to task over the Council of Trent, which the Catholic Church waited until Luther died before they had that church council, major church council. Um, there, only, there have only been two church councils in the Catholic Church since Trent. Do you know what they are? They have the same name. Vatican I, Vatican I and II, yeah. But before them, you have to go all the way back to the Council of Trent in the 15, um, 
1550s and 60s. Um, but Chemnitz is the one who defended the Lutheran faith after that Council of Trent. Chemnitz said about this, uh, I don't know if I can remember exactly how he put it, um, but he says, um, the, the, the righteous man, the poor in spirit, ultimately has um, a little nest on the eaves of the house that God had intended for him. So, in other words, if somebody comes along and steals your house, takes away, because of their wickedness, what God had planned to give you, God still makes sure that you have a little nest where you can set up that's somewhere there where he had meant for you to be. That's, that's that idea from, from if, they, if they come and, and take away, or the army comes and burns down your village, or the... Or the, the the dastardly money changers come and take away your home or whatever, you still end up with some little place where you can set up shop and raise your family and so forth. Um, to be meek, finally, um, here we have two different persons in one man. To be meek in my heart, even if I am a prince, a man who cannot be meek because I must be a champion for my people, right? If I'm truly a prince, I have to... I have to protect them and stand up for them. Well, Luther says here we have two different persons in one man. The one is that in which we are created and born, according to which we are all alike, man or woman or child, young or old. But once we are born, God adorns and dresses you up as another person. He makes you a child and me a father, one a master, another a servant, one a prince, another a citizen. So your Childhood, childlike faith is where your meekness lives. But God might assign you a different place in society where maybe you can't be meek, but you're at least outwardly in certain circumstances. But you must carry that meekness and in, uh, in your attitude toward the world. Does that make sense? Anybody have a last thought on that third beatitude? Mark? Sure. God preserving us. That's what that was the Chemnitz quote also about having at least a, a nest on the eaves of where you were supposed to live. Yeah. Oh, that's all right, but it doesn't necessarily have to contrast. Um, not everything falls into, the, into rhetoric. And the Holy Spirit is not bound by the rules of grammar. One of my favorite quotes. Um, uh, uh, just ponder the Trinity for a while and you'll find that out. But, um, but yeah, uh, we still have our labor to do that God sets out before us in a kind of a cobblestone walkway. Which stone am I going to step on today? God put them all there. So I make a number of good choices. 
And it might be this one, it might be that one. Today it might be this one over here. But they are all good works God puts in my path for me to do. And I will do what I can. And if I miss one, then maybe God will send my big brother behind me to clean up what I forgot. Um, and on and on and on. Thanks for letting me do this. God bless you. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.